Jacobin Radio. I'm your guest host, Barry Eidland, filling in today for your regular host, Susie Weissman, who will be back soon. Today we're digging into one of the most high-profile labor struggles of this recent hot labor summer, the strike of more than 11,500 film and television screenwriters, members of the Writers Guild of America, or WGA. On September 24th, After 146 days on strike, the WGA Negotiating Committee announced a tentative agreement with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, or AMPTP, the association representing major studios and streamers. The WGA Negotiating Committee, Writers Guild of America West Board, and Writers Guild of America East Council all voted unanimously to recommend the agreement. And on Wednesday, September 27th, the strike was suspended and writers began returning to work. We'll get the latest on the tentative agreement for screenwriters and what comes next from two WGA leaders and activists who have been deeply involved in the contract fight. All that and more when our program returns in just a moment. Hello again and welcome back to Jacobin Radio. I'm your guest host, Barry Eidlin, filling in this week for Susie Weissman. After 146 days on strike, the Writers Guild of America, or WGA, and the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, or AMPTP, announced a tentative agreement for the contract covering 11,500 film and television screenwriters across the U.S., this past Sunday, September 24th. The WGA Negotiating Committee, WGA West Board, and WGA East Council all voted unanimously to recommend the agreement, and on Wednesday, September 27th, the strike was suspended and writers began returning to work. Writers are currently voting on whether to ratify the agreement, and balloting will end on October 9th. In announcing the agreement, WGA leadership said that, quote, this deal is exceptional, with meaningful gains and protections for writers in every sector of the membership, unquote. Major media outlets agreed, with the New York Times stating that the deal, quote, gives Writers Guild most of what it wanted, unquote. Industry publication Deadline noted, quote, big gains for workers, and a headline in The Hollywood Reporter said that, quote, many writers see tentative deal as blueprint for Hollywood's future, unquote. When the WGA released the terms of the new tentative agreement, it became clear that the deal did contain major gains for writers. Better wages and improved language on so-called residuals to ensure that writers keep getting paid as studios and streamers keep making money off their work through rebroadcasts, minimum staffing levels and compensation for script rewrites, strict limits on the use of generative AI in the writing process, requiring studios and streamers to share streaming data, and much more. But beyond the contract language, writers feel that they have won something bigger, a new sense of solidarity and the power they have as workers. 
that could be crucial as the class struggle continues to heat up in Hollywood and beyond in the months ahead. Film and TV actors are continuing their strike, which started on July 14th, and they could soon be joined by video game actors, who recently authorized a strike by 98%. And many more of the workers who perform the invisible labor that makes Hollywood run, members of the Teamsters and IATSE, will be negotiating their contracts next year. Meanwhile, writers and other Hollywood workers inspired by their own fights in the entertainment industry have been joining the rallies and picket lines of other workers, like UPS Teamsters, Big Three Auto Workers, hotel workers, and more. This could make for an explosive mix as our hot labor summer transitions into a possible fiery labor fall. Here to discuss the ins and outs of the writer's tentative agreement with the studios and streamers and what comes next, we have two WGA leaders and activists who have been deeply involved in the contract fight and strike. Alex O'Keefe is a screenwriter and organizer from Gotha, Florida, and a rank-and-file member of the Writers Guild of America West. He helped spearhead the campaign for the Green New Deal and has written for Senators and FX's The Bear. Also with me is Howard Rodman. He is the past president of the Writers Guild of America West, a professor of screenwriting at USC's School of Cinematic Arts, a member of the National Film Preservation Board, and an artistic director of the Sundance Screenwriting Labs. In 2021, he was elected a governor of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, and in 2023, an Academy Vice President. His notable writing credits include Savage Grace, with Julianne Moore and Eddie Redmayne, and August, starring Josh Hartnett and David Bowie. Most recently, he was a staff writer on the HBO Max series, The Idol, for director Sam Levinson and co-creator The Weeknd. Alex O'Keefe and Howard Rodman, thank you so much for joining me here today on Jacobin Radio. Thank you, Barry. Great to be here. Yeah, God bless. God bless you and Jacobin for keeping us updated about the labor movement right now. Appreciate it. Great. Thanks so much. So right now, when we're recording, there is a tentative agreement and the WJ Negotiating Committee, the Writers Guild of America West Board, and the Writers Guild of America East Council have all voted unanimously to recommend the agreement. And of course, we need to remember that as democratic organizations, members are going to debate and vote on whether or not to ratify the agreement. But for now, the strike is suspended, meaning that writers are now going back to work after around five months on the picket line. So just to start, I want to know, how are you guys feeling right now? You know, when the news came out on Sunday night that they'd reached the tentative agreement, I was numb, frankly. I mean, I think I've been used to a situation where we are on strike for so long that when somebody says, hey, the strike's ending, it was just, huh? What? You know, I, I it was like being hit on the head with a glorious two-by-four. I think I walked around for a day or two sort of not knowing how to take it in. And then last night when I went to the Palladium for the gathering of the Writers Guild of America West, where they were presenting the contract to the membership in this very large crowd, all of a sudden the poignance crept in and the sense of joy crept in. 
And the visible manifestation of solidarity that was present in that room crept in. And, and I started to cry. So right now I'm kind of uh, a little bit jubilant and a little bit weepy. Beautiful. Yeah, I, I feel I feel a similar way, Howard. Um, I was numb, you know. It's been five months. It's a war of attrition. A strike is not, you know, you do the action, you go home, you drop your picket sign there. You know, it, it carries across your entire life. So my entire life, and especially my career, of course, was uprooted by this strike. It's a sacrifice. It's a necessary sacrifice. And writers like me who are just, we just got our foot in the door, a lot of that sacrifice hits us the hardest. I mean, I have $63 in my bank account. Like, I was at my end. I didn't know how it was going to keep going. And I think that the strike had gone on so long, it felt like as if it would never end. And I knew it would end in our victory. It just felt emotionally like it would never end. And I was just focusing on I might have to just shift careers or leave L.A. and and, and live somewhere cheaper. I wasn't about to break the strike, but I was about to do whatever I could to continue the strike by making income um, and making more consistent income. So when I got it, it, I almost didn't believe it, and I didn't trust it until I got the terms of the agreement. And when I read through the terms of the agreement, I was shocked. We won. I don't think you could characterize it as any other way. We won for writers of every sector, and we won for rank-and-file writers like myself. You know, I was a staff writer on The Bear. Um, before, staff writers would not get paid if you wrote an episode. Now you get paid if you write an episode. We get a real share in the success of our streaming shows. If they blow up, you get a share in that. Um, we, You know, the Guild will receive data of how many people are viewing our shows. That's pretty essential to determine the value of our labor. Um, and the biggest thing, I think, and this is something that emerged during the strike, that no one knew quite how important this strike was going to be for the rest of the labor force across the world. We set a new standard on AI and automation that I think will affect many labor battles, certainly in Hollywood, but I think across America, even across the world, that we ensured that AI is not going to replace screenwriters. If we did not win that, we could have won the best raise as possible, but we would have been replaced in three years. Now, it doesn't mean that they, they still might, you know, try to screw around with us. You can't trust. We A contract is only as powerful as you enforce it. So it's up for all the members and the guild to enforce this contract and enforce the gains. But if we're just looking at the terms, I think it is a historic, historic contract that is a true new deal for Hollywood that could possibly save this career from extinction. And we've seen yeah. the extinction of writing across journalism and new media. And they were coming for us next, these tech bros. And we didn't let them. We put our foot down. They said it was an impossible fight, yet we beat them. Yeah. So I do want to get into some of the specifics on the contract. You've already started laying some of those out. But, Alex, I'd, I'd like to remind our listeners of just – how we got to a strike in the first place. So if you could just start us off by talking about the issues that drove writers to strike in the first place. I know, Alex, you mentioned already that, you know, you're a writer on a very successful show, The Bear, which many people would think that that would put you in a better position than a lot of other writers, but that's not necessarily the case. You were still struggling, as you just just mentioned. So, I would just like to give our listeners a sense of what the situation was facing Hollywood writers in 2023 leading up to the strike. 
Let, I, let me talk a little bit about that. Uh, it's a great question, and it's the essential question here. I'd like to go back a little bit to the strike of 2007-2008. In that strike, there were many issues on the table, but there was essentially one overarching issue, which was jurisdiction over what was then called new media and what we now know as the world. Imagine if the writers had lost that strike, if we'd accepted the deal that was on the table before we went on strike. Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, Apple, all of that would be the Wild West. There would be no pension. There would be no health. There would be no minimums. There would be no Writers Guild jurisdiction over any of that. And any network who wanted to evade Guild jurisdiction would just say, oh, we're streaming it. It's a streaming show. Bam. Mm -hmm. So we were fighting for the future. And I loved some of the picket signs in the 2008 strike. There was a, a small child in a stroller with a small picket sign that said, it's all new media to me. Mm -hmm. And people understood that. But here, there was not one the issue. It was not all AI all the time, or all size of writers' rooms all the time, or all two-step deals for writers, or all script fees for staff writers. Or It was the entire constellation of things which said, the system is broken. The change in the business model from studios and networks to the streaming world has broken it. And if it's not fixed, writers will not have careers, only gigs. And if it's not fixed, that thread that was handed down to us from the previous generation to the next generation to the next generation to us, the thread that says, in success, you can make a living as a writer, that thread would have snapped with us. And I think what we said was, no, uh, not on our watch. That's not going to happen. I always knew that we would win because I saw at close hand the 85 and 88 strikes. I was on the negotiating committee in the 2007-2008 strike. I knew something. I knew that when we hold together, we win. But I didn't know how long it would take. Yeah. And Alex, what about you? I think that for my generation, it's the contradictions of Hollywood became too extreme to just continue playing our part with the status quo. Hollywood, when you are on the come up, when you're writing your sample scripts, when you're trying to break into the guild, it's this mirage um, that's just a little bit away. And you think, if I could just get that dream job, then I'll be secure and I won't have to worry and I won't have to have other jobs. And you know that you have to hustle to make it there. But you feel like once you make it there, then at least you'll have a good union job. You'll be protected. You have health insurance. And I pursued Hollywood not to become some famous filmmaker, but just because I'm from Florida, I'm from poverty. You know, I just wanted that security. And I, I don't think I could work. I don't think I could ham handle the, the machinist union or the UAW union. You know, I'm, I'm a writer. That's what I'm talented at. So I thought this is the one place that I could apply my craft at a high level and I could raise a family and I could have a middle class life um, and I could have health insurance. And that's what I pursued. And I got very lucky. You know, I got very, I'm talented. I'm very talented, but I gotta say, I got very lucky that my first professional gig was the bear. And I got on there because they didn't think it was going to be a big show. <laughs> they thought it was going to be a big show. They probably would have hired a more experienced writer, but they wanted a new spice, a new voice. And there's a lot of new voices in Hollywood right now. People of color, women, people from the working class, 
doesn't matter what race um, you are, but it's new voices, new creativity, and that's amazing. We are seeing a boom. Peak TV is what they called it, right? The golden age of television, and that's being pushed by new voices and also uh, the voices that have been established in the Guild for a long time being able to express themselves. So I always imagine watching TV like any fan that this creative boom was matched with a boom of value for the workers. I thought it was a white collar job when I got that call and it wasn't a ton of money to be a staff writer, but still I thought, well, this is, this is it for me. I guess I've made it. And when you're in Hollywood, you're always searching for that moment. And then once you actually work the job, you realize, no, it's just another job. It's just another gig and you can do great work. But it doesn't the the bosses, the studios don't incentivize you to make great art. They incentivize you to make content. And if even if you make something that's huge, like the bear, um, you don't really we, we before we didn't really get a fair share in the profits. We didn't get a fair share in the success, not just people at the bottom of the of the rank, but also what blew my mind, people at the top. Showrunners, lead actors were not getting a fair share in the success of their streaming shows. I wrote for the bear from my, you know, tiny Brooklyn apartment. It was a pandemic winter. They didn't find me out to the writer's room, but I was lucky enough to get in the room and be on Zoom. But still, I plug in my space theater, and it would knock out all the power. I worked on the last episode from a public library. And I think the ironies of this dream job actually having nightmarish conditions became bigger and bigger, especially for my generation, and it, it radicalized us that we knew that there was value in Hollywood. We were not going to believe that Hollywood was broke. You know, we see where the producers and the executives eat every day, but we knew that we weren't going to get it. And we no longer believed in the promise. If we just work our way up, that American dream, pull yourself up from your bootstraps, be be innovative, be, be hardworking, and you'll get there. We no longer really believed in it. It seemed purely about luck. And then even if you get lucky like me, it's no security. So, it reached a point that everyone, and I think this is why we had so much solidarity, from the staff writer to the showrunner, from the showrunner to the teamster, from the teamster to the actor, everyone across the business was like, wait a second, we know we're producing value. We know we're our value. And if we don't all stand up now together, we might not have a, a career. We might have a job in five years. We see the way that capitalism is going and the way that they're trying to produce value. They're not producing value by making great product. They're yeah. producing value by downsizing, killing jobs, not creating good jobs. We have to fundamentally shift that trajectory in America to rebuild the middle class and also democratize our workplaces. And that's the one thing I would add that since the last strike, the last strike, George W. Bush was president. All right. It was a very different culture in America. We are in a much more friendly labor culture since Chris Smalls, since the pandemic. There is especially a youth movement in the labor movement, unionizing Starbucks, you know, unionizing Trader Joe's. And that has rippled into Hollywood, into a youthful, more militant um, labor force in Hollywood. So we won big. And this is just the beginning. We once you pull down that curtain. You no longer believe in the glitzy glamour of it all. You realize that your power comes from your truth. Your power comes from talking to your coworkers about what's really going on in your life, what's really going on in the workplace. 
And once you change that consciousness in somebody, it's very hard to drag them back into that fearful position of just shut the hell up and take what we give you. Now we see we are the power brokers in Hollywood. The workers are the power brokers. And we want a huge new deal. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there, obviously. And I definitely want to get more into that. But before we get too deep, I actually I, I want to turn to you, Howard. And we've already talked a bit about this, but could you just walk our listeners through some of the concrete contract provisions that are in this new tentative agreement and what kind of difference that's going to make in writers' lives and how what you won compared to what the studios were trying to get you to accept initially. Hmm. Absolutely, Barry. And I think, you know, the top line is because there's a wonderful movie called Body and Soul written by Abe Polanski. And um, in it, there's a young boxer played by John Garfield, and at the end, uh, he comes up from poverty, and he's doing well as a boxer, and he has a real chance to break out, and they want him to throw the fight, because the smart money's against him. And the promoter says, you're taking a, you're going into the tank for this one. You know, we'll take care of you. And John Garfield gives this great speech about his integrity. He gives this great speech about his ideals, this great speech about how he came up from nothing. And the promoter says, there's addition, there's subtraction. The rest is conversation. And so with that in mind, let's start with the addition and subtraction. When we started this strike on May 1st, what they were offering on the table was $86 million a year for writers. The tentative agreement has $233 million a year for writers. That's well over two and a half times as much as they were offering. So that's the thing that frames all the rest of this. We got 5%, 4 and 3.5% raises on minimums. And given that most of us, 50% of the guild works for minimums, that's wildly significant. That's cumulative 13% over the life of the contract. We got made for TV, you know, made for VOD programs, got a lot more money for them for feature writers. Under certain conditions, they're now guaranteed a two-step deal rather than a one-step deal. What does that mean? What does, what's a two-step sure. deal versus a one-step deal? Happy to talk about that as it's a lifelong screenwriter. So yeah. the way it works is you are not paid for your time as a screenwriter. You're paid for drafts. This made sense in an era where you wrote it out in longhand and then somebody else typed it up. A draft has for decades not been a great metric for compensating screenwriting work. But when I started coming up, you would get two or three step deals, which meant you did a draft and you got some notes from the producers and studios and you got paid to do another draft and you got notes from studios and producers. And then sometimes you would get hired for a third draft, a polish. So you got the benefit of their input. You got the benefit of trying to come through for them and you got guaranteed two or three steps. So that was what you got. And that was your quote. Starting around 29, 2010, they started giving people one-step deals. But the amount of work didn't decrease because you got notes, and then you got more notes, and then you got more and more notes, and you would do fully as much work for a one-step deal as you would for your old two-step or three-step deal. The big difference was you were getting paid 40% less. So the initiation of a two-step deal guarantees that that kind of wild exploitation of your time that kind of mandated free work, this is a step toward that being thrown in the dustbin of history. And it was an essential step. 
And it's even more essential because I think for a long time, screenwriters have feared this is a union of television writers. Our needs are secondary. And when push comes to shove, since no screenwriters issue is a universal strike issue, our needs will just be sacrificed for the greater good of some television writer agenda. And that didn't happen here. What happened was that there were gains in every area for all sectors of the writing community. And I cannot tell you how moving and meaningful it is for screenwriters to to come and hear the deal points. And not only is there something in screen, but there is a significant victory for us as there is a significant victory for comedy variety writers, as there's a significant victory for staff writers, all up and down the line. And um, it's moving. It's powerful. It's necessary. And uh, quietly triumphant. What about the what about the residuals issue? Yeah, uh, so studios hate paying residuals. Residuals came in in 1960 as a result of the last strike where writers and actors were out together. Uh, as a result of that strike, we got residuals, meaning payment for reuse. It started when theatrical screenwriters found their movies were being shown on TV. What a concept! And they wanted to say, "Hey, wait a minute." You're making new money on our product. We want a piece of it. Um, they didn't want to give a piece of it. It took a long and devastating strike for them to agree to give a piece of it. And by the way, that was the same strike where we got health and pension. Mm-hmm. But as recently as the 2017 negotiation, when I was president of the Guild, and I've now been in one, two, three, four, maybe five negotiating committees, one of the people on the other side who shall remain anonymous said, I don't pay my plumber every time I flush my toilet. And that's their attitude toward residuals. Oh my God. It's like, we paid for it, we bought it, you know, why are you still sticking around? Why is you, you with your hand out? And we were saying, hey, if you continue to make money off of what we do, we should get some of it. And so in the 2007, 2008 strike, really what we wanted was jurisdiction. We got it, but we were willing to take as a foot in the door, no minimums, the, cruddy residuals formula, you know, we were willing to just be able to talk to them about what it would be like in streaming. And over the years, it's improved a little and improved a little, but streaming residuals have fallen far, far behind the other residuals in in theatrical and in series. So if you're a screenwriter and you make a movie for theatrical distribution, you get one set of payments. And if that movie turns out not to be in theaters, but on a streaming service, you got far, 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 far less for its reuse. Yeah. So we wanted to remedy that, and we did, and we did it in a big way for programs with a budget of $30 million or more, which is most things on SVOD, streaming video on demand. Uh, we got an 18% increase to initial compensation, a 26% increase in the residual base, and over three years, it gives a residual of – Average $216,000 for product projects on the largest scale on streaming services. So it was a way of saying, Hey, you're making a lot of money on our product. You smashed the business model, which gave us good compensation for it. And now you got to pay up. Did you want to add something, Alex? I would add that for writers like myself on the most precarious edge of the business, we haven't fully established ourselves. TV rooms are, or historically, hopefully this changes because of the new provisions of the contract with screenwriting, TV rooms are often the best way to get experience and get a steady job that resembles a job that you get paid like every two weeks. 
Um, hopefully, you know, yeah. ideally. So a lot of us have pursued TV writing because that's also where the most jobs are. Since the rise of streaming, there's been this thing called a mini room or development room where you can write a whole season of TV um, that never even airs. And you get paid less, like less than you don't get a paid a premium for this, but you get paid less than what you would get in a regular room, a regular size room. And also they can have they used to be able to, I should say, um, <laughs> which is awesome. That's awesome to say. I'm still I, I'm still adjusting to the new reality. They used to be able to have that room be done by a very small amount of writers, hence the mini room. So the, they would have less writers doing more work over less period of time for less pay. Wow, that was, you got to hand it to the man. They found a big loophole there. We changed that. We changed that. Now there's, for the first time ever in the contract, first off, we have the language of what a writer's, uh, there's a writer's room, which Howard, correct me if I'm wrong, that wasn't in the contract before. The fact of a writer's room was never in the contract before, and no. even the word showrunner was never in the contract before. So yeah, to establish, now we've established a minimum of how many writers constitute a, a writer's room based on how long the room is, based on whether it's a development room or if it's already been greenlit. So just establishing that is huge for future organizing. I, I think that as the guild keeps going, perhaps we, we raise that, that minimum. But first, we just establish that this essential part of the business, that there are showrunners in a writer's room, is within the contract. So you cannot just bulldoze it and create a whole new concept of how a TV show is made and also get keep showrunners out of the process. You know, like Disney wasn't even calling their showrunners showrunners. They were calling them head writers. So they just found all these different ways to bypass the regulations that protect writers and also make sure that they can't just have one writer in the room and then there's an AI that is writing the work of six different writers. So I think that will make sure that young writers like me are able to stay in the business. Um, if we didn't have that, I was very fearful for the future of my career. So that was the one thing that when I talk to people on the line, people were like, ah. to be honest with you, people were like, that's a big one. I don't know if we're going to get that. Not people, people, that was the biggest one. And the fact that we not only got that, but we established what a showrunner is, what a writer's room is, is and real minimums, staffing levels. That is going to be a generational shift in television writing. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I am a feature writer, and yeah. I want to tell you why writers' rooms are so important and why writers' rooms being enshrined in the MBA is so important. Uh, my dad was a TV writer. When he wrote, it was a very different era. He wrote on shows like Naked City and Route 66. A season was 39 episodes of hour-long drama. There were writers' rooms in comedy, but not in drama. The way drama writing worked in the early 1960s, there were one or two guys, and I say guys because they were mostly guys, who sat in a room and wrote scripts themselves or rewrote scripts that came in from a pool of freelance writers. And they were responsible for 39 hours of television a year. Uh, by comparison, 39 hours is um, pretty much, what, the first three or four seasons of Succession. And they had to do that every year. There was no hiatus because by the time you finished with a season, there was the next season right there at your throats. And because there was no writer's room, they had to do all of that yourself. They did the things you do when you had to do all of that yourself, which is, you know, abuse prescription drugs, stay up all night again and again and again and again. 
My father worked through two minor heart attacks because there was no room. There were no other shoulders to carry the load. There was only him and a guy named Sterling Silliphant. So they had no alternative but to work through injury. My father died of heart disease at age 65 as a result of the labor and the things he did to support the labor in order to write in an era when there was no such thing as writer's rooms. I believe in my heart that had there been writer's rooms in those days, my dad might have lived to see three grandchildren. He might have lived to see all of us live and blossom and have the lives that we have now. And so it's not just a benefit. It's not just mm. something that's nice. It's something that creates careers, but also preserves the quality and sometimes the quantity of human life. Yeah. Thank you for that. We've been talking sort of around this, but this is, of course, the big issue that the media wanted to talk about is the AI issue. So before we move on to other things, I think it's important to let our listeners know what the language says about AI and how it's going to protect writers. Alex, do you want to talk about AI while I um, pull up the exact language? I can talk about it um, while you pull up the exact language, but the, the top line is that we saved our craft from the machines. <laughs> you know, they it really was humanity versus the machines, and it shows the degradation of our relationships with the executives and the power brokers and the CEOs that they stop seeing what we do as an art and they start seeing as a con- as content. Like us as coders, they come from tech, so they saw, well, why don't we just code better shows? Why don't we just feed all the bear episodes in and then we can write episodes of the bear for for generations to come and people can write can request their own custom season of the bear so there was no they want to erase all authorship they want to be able to feed our scripts into ai generative ai to be able to replace us and if we allowed that to happen then as i got older there would be no guild that was going to be their long-term vision, let's just say this clear, how they break the union. I really believe this, and I can't get confirmation, that they thought that this strike was going to be the strike, that they land a blow to break the union. It might not have all broken after this strike, but if they were able to win this AI, I mean, for both us and the actors, we wouldn't have had a union in 10 years. It would have been broken, and it would have been so, what do you say, compromised by machines being able to steal our copyrighted work, steal our art form, steal our souls, and then reproduce, it would have delegitimized our entire craft. So I am am so impressed by the level of regulations that we've won for AI. And talking to a lot of other unions and talking to even politicians, because I used to work in politics, they said, guys, y'all are on the forefront of AI. This is so new that so many other members of the progressive movement, political movement, uh, labor movement, were looking to the Writers Guild and our amazing research department to figure out how to regulate AI to save uh, jobs for the long term. So I'm very proud of these provisions. Howard, if you want to speak about the specifics, that'd be amazing. Yeah, what I'd like to say by way of preference is that Alex is absolutely right. I mean, they see what we do as content. When David Zaslav speaks, he speaks of his IPs. And their larger aim is not unlike the way William Burroughs described the economics of the heroin trade. Don't improve the product, degrade the buyer. And AI was part of that for them. 
So what we won, and it was not easy, it was among the very, very last things talked about in the very last two days of negotiation, was the following. AI-generated written material is not literary material. It cannot be used as source material. It cannot be used as assigned material under the MBA. In other words, you're not splitting credit with a machine, and they can't give you a machine-written thing and then say, oh, you're the rewriter on that. Uh Uh-uh. And uh, AI is not a writer under the MBA. Writers, if they wish, can elect to use AI when performing writing services, but the company cannot require you to use AI software while performing writing services. And they have to disclose to you if any material given to you has been generated by AI or incorporates any AI-generated material. And I think most importantly, we reserve the right to assert that the exploitation of writer's material to train AI is prohibited by the MBA or any other law. In other words, don't scrape our scripts to have a machine create shittier versions of our scripts. And the fact that when talks broke off on May 1st, what they were offering on AI was, we will meet with you once a year to chat about technology. Unbelievable. That was as far as they would go on AI. And so when I look at the AI provisions that we got, is it perfect? No. But there are the most essential guardrails around the kind of abuse they were gleefully contemplating when they offered us a once a year sit down to talk. Yeah, AI is a beast. AI is a beast and it's going to continue to evolve. That's what AI does. And I think even what we're calling AI is not true AI yet. But I believe in my lifetime, we're going to see AI that is extremely sophisticated, far more. Chat GPT will look like GeoCities compared to what we're going to look at in the future. So this is going to be a long term battle and struggle against automation and AI contract, contract battle after contract battle, because I know at the beginning of the contract battle, AI was one of the last things one of the last provisions to make it into the pattern of demands because it was, it seemed bye-bye, you know, even earlier this year before Jack chat GPT and mid journey and Dolly, um, it's, it seems still sci-fi and far away. I actually had written a script about AI in Hollywood that was set in the not too distant future, like 10, 15 years. And then all of a sudden it's just here. And I think all of us were shocked at how quickly and sophisticated it was at scraping copyrighted art for its own purposes to, to reproduce without crediting artists or paying artists. So there is going to be a lot more to do. And I think these AI technologies are going to be very tricky at how they scrape um, our art. And I think a lot of it also has to be dealt with by the EU. It has to be dealt with by Congress. It can't just be the labor unions fighting against this. This is intellectual property, right? It's property. So, in this country, you're supposed to protect the rights of the property owner, right? That's last time I checked. That's one of Congress's number one things. Um, but when it comes unless to- that property is labor power, unless that property is owned by workers, <laughs> you know, um, if that property is not owned by billionaires, so we have to defend those rights. We have to defend those rights, and we I really want to see us lobby our politicians, and all labor. I mean, this is going to hit the Teamsters. This is going to hit the truck drivers. Um, Gavin Newsom, very, <laughs> I don't know why he did this. Uh, such a, oh, my God, horrific choice to veto 
protections that would help protect the Teamsters and truck drivers' jobs against AI. Um, the Teamsters have a contract battle next year, and I'm sure that there's also want to replace the truck drivers in our industry and in every industry with artificial technology that drives the trucks for them. That this is going to be a fight across every sector of the labor movement, and what we won was the first guardrails. And I hope that every fight afterwards, from UAW to the Teamsters, they build upon it. It can't stop here, but this is an incredible start to the movement to save humanity in the workplace. Yeah, if you're just joining... Okay, go ahead. Yeah, um, I, you know, just because uh, I have a historical perspective because I'm old, sometimes that helps. It Uh, helps. I see the fact that there is language about AI in this contract the way I see the fact that we finally got jurisdiction over new media in 2008, which is to say... There's an important change in technology. It will cause an important change in the business model of what our employers do. And either we are able to talk about it or we're not. And in both cases, they said, oh, it's just this thing. We It doesn't make money for us. We don't have a business model for it. Don't worry about it. And in both cases, we said, no, actually, we're not stupid. We're worrying about it. And so we got jurisdiction over the Internet, over streaming in 2008. And now we have jurisdiction over AI and putting guardrails around AI in this contract. And I think both, frankly, are of equal and large systemic importance. And Mm -hmm. as Alex said, not just for writers. Imagine, you know, what AI can do to the careers of actors. And then Mm -hmm. broadly outside the entertainment industry, thank you, Gavin Newsom, trucks driven by computers, you know. So it's really important. It was of vital importance that our labor power or our ability to withhold our labor power set a precedent here, which I hope will be not just widely used, but widely improved upon. Yeah. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Alex O'Keefe and Howard Rodman, both are leaders and activists in the Writers Guild of America, and they're speaking to us here about the recent tentative agreement announced after a five-month strike. I'm your guest host, Barry Eidlin, sitting in today for Susie Weissman. So beyond the specifics of what's in the contract, it's clear you feel like this is a, a big win for writers. But I'd like to hear about the broader gains you see coming out of the strike beyond the black and white of the contract language. Just this morning, I was in correspondence with somebody who said, you know what, let's take the lesson of this strike and just say, no more free rights. If somebody asks me to do a free pass on a screenplay, I'm not going to do it. And I said, you know what, I'm not going to do it. How about Hmm. you, my friends? And it was, I think, a kind of I am Spartacus moment that was occasioned by the fact that we realized something, that when we hold together, we win. And when we hold the line, they have to step back. And so if all of us newly emboldened and newly fortified and newly strengthened by what we learned about the power of the community of writers in this strike, build upon that, not just in terms of what's in the contract language, but in terms of our daily work lives. No, I ain't going to work on Maggie's Farm no more. No, I'm not going to do that work for free. No, that's not what writers do. It's your job to pay us for that. 
And I think that there's going to be a wild expansion of that kind of attitude and that kind of solidarity and that kind of strength in many, many, many large and small corners of what we do in our daily lives as writers. Yeah, you know, the strike is about money. It's about surviving. But it's also about respect. When you hear your boss, your employer say that their strategy is to leave you homeless for exercising your power, your democratic constitutional power to go on strike and withhold your labor, you understand what their game is. And I think that there was a large consciousness lift of realizing who these people really are. These CEOs, these studios, they are not our friends. They are our enemy. They would like to destroy us. And the only reason they didn't destroy us is because we banded together in solidarity across race and class and gender ideology to say, no, enough is enough. We demand respect. And we put respect on the name of writers. And you'd be surprised at how disrespected writers can be in this business. And so I think that we have a new level of self-respect that, like Howard is saying, we're not going to accept free rewrites. We're not going to accept loopholes integrating working conditions and accept that, oh, take this deal, we'll give it to somebody else. You know, I think that is how they divide workers historically. The other thing is there is a Hollywood labor movement now. You hear Lindsay Dowdery of the Teamsters and the, the Firebrands. People like me, who I was just some guy, <laughs> you know, broke, broke off my ass. And I've been on CNN now. New voices have emerged, and it's just the beginning. Um, I'm sure there's many more voices. There's strike captains, like dozens of strike captains who have held the line, who are now so involved in our guild. There's new organizing that has happened across Hollywood. The Marvel VFX workers have unionized. I just spoke with production assistants who are planning to unionize. We see ourselves as the protagonists of this story. Um, we see ourselves as the agents of our own destiny. We no longer have this misery. Misery is a word for it, that we can't change our conditions, that this is just the way things are. There is nothing that empowers and raises the consciousness quite like winning and winning big. So this huge victory, at least for my generation, shows us never accept again. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry if you're on the radio. Bleep that out. My bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you just can't accept, you can't accept the minimum. And you have to believe that if we band together, we can fight, we can win. There are going to be new issues that arise in my generation and the next that we can't even predict right now. Just like in 2007, they couldn't have predicted AI would be a major issue of this strike. So we have to stay organized. And the biggest thing is to see the, the unions of Hollywood, not as a service that we pay a percentage of our paycheck to to keep our health insurance, but as a commitment. As an organization, as a democracy of your coworkers, that when you are abused or when you are harassed or you are exploited, you have a place to go. But it's only as powerful as the power you put into it. Now we yeah. see that's a consciousness that you cannot erase, especially with this huge win we're celebrating now. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so building on what you're just saying, Alex, you know, I mean, I was I was in L.A. over the summer while the strike was going on. I was able to make it out to the picket line several times. and one thing that really struck me was the high levels of participation and energy I saw on the picket lines, even months into the strike. You know, I think it's pretty common with strikes. You know, that's what I, I'm a labor scholar, so I started to study these things. And 
when you have these longer strikes as they stretch out, they often settle into a kind of routine. You know, the energy mm-hmm. level drops. It becomes just a few people around a fire barrel, that kind of thing. That was not at all the case when it came to this strike. So why do you think that is? You have to credit I, the strike captains. The strike captain system was huge, dozens. I don't, I don't, don't know the exact number, but there are these strike captains. Many of them were young, but it's all across the guild who kept people motivated, kept people informed, let people know the issues at hand, and educated our membership. But also, one amazing innovation I would suggest other labor unions use in their strike is themed pickets. Oh, my God. The picket was a party. There was a Beyonce picket. There were reunion pickets of the Simpsons. And so the picket wasn't just, let's walk around, let's talk about our grievances. It was, let's celebrate who we are. We're writers. We're storytellers. We're the culture makers. And I think that the this picket was a site of catharsis and celebration that I could have never imagined. I've never seen anything like that in the labor movement before. So the strike happens and the creativity of the picket. I think that kept it going that you wanted to go to the picket on Friday to see your friends, to see, oh, the, the, the Abbott Elementary is doing a picket with UTLA. Let's see what that's like. Yeah. Just the creativity of our union was unleashed on the picket line. And that kept people like me, even though I wasn't making a lot of money and I was broke as hell, it kept me coming because I needed that community. That's the thing that kept me. That's how we held the line through community and creativity. It makes sense coming from the Writers Guild of America. Yeah, I had a lot and of fun. At the, the I had end. a lot of fun at the uh, at the K-pop picket line that I went to. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. But but coming from the other end, I think among the AMPTP's victories here was the radicalization of a, a generation of writers. I mean, yes. when the AMPTP made the cold, callous, calculating decision to spend a hundred days away from the table in hopes that the WJ would soften. They were willing to cause pain and suffering and devastation for tens of thousands of human beings in hopes that we would soften. It's like Harry Lyme in The Third Man, you know, gazing down at humanities from the heights of a Ferris wheel over Vienna, saying, you know, look down there. Tell me, would you really feel any pity if one of those dots stopped moving forever? If I offered you 20,000 pounds for every dot that stopped, would you really, old man, tell me to keep my money? Or would you calculate how many dots you could afford to spare? That was their philosophy, and we knew it, and we felt it. And speaking for me and the people of my cohort who went back to the picket lines, part of it was, yes, it's a lot of fun to picket, but part of it was we were not about to let them cause all of that pain, suffering, and misery to us, to our communities. We were going to show them that every day we were on the picket line, we were, as the sign says, one day stronger. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Barry, if you look at me now, you can see I have a broken tooth, right? Oh, okay. I can to fix it during the strike. I have Our six, listeners can't see that, but you, can't I, see can, I can confirm that you have a broken tooth. I look like I've been in a fight, and I have been. Yeah. <laughs> I've been in a 12-round boxing match, man, <laughs> and I'm, I've been beaten down, all right? Economically, you get a mental ass kicking on a strike, but I knew and they, they bet that if we beat down writers like me, staff writers, poor broke writers, that we would break the strike. That we would say, we got to go back. We got to save our industry. It did the opposite, man. I just, round after round, I just went back in there and kept fighting. So yeah. I think it was a spite thing at a certain point. It's like, you want me homeless? 
Well, listen, <laughs> I could be homeless, begging for change. I'll still be on strike until we beat you and get that money back. So at a certain point, you can't break the spirit. And a certain spirit of solidarity was formed early. A fire was ignited early in the strike, and you can't break that. And the more they tried to break us, and the more they went mask off about how little respect they had for us, the more self-respect we had for ourselves. So you can't break us. You can't beat a fight. You can't win a fight against somebody who has nothing to lose. I had nothing to lose. I knew a career under their terms and their rules would be no kind of career at all. So the only way for us to even have a future, we had to build it. These people are burning Hollywood. We're burning Hollywood to the ground. And so we had to save the industry from itself, from the power brokers who had completely lost the thread. And so, hey, we're storytellers. We're able to find the thread and tell the next chapter. We had to write it for them, unfortunately. And it was a hard writing process. But no notes. No notes. No <laughs> you know, notes. 100%. Yeah. So why yeah, do you but, think... Uh, but, oh, you know, let, let me just say that I think the attitude that Alex talks about was exactly right. To quote that great screenwriter, Polanski, what are you going to do? Kill me? Everybody dies. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, we had the invincible power of those with nothing to lose. And even those of us I've had a long career. I've been in the Guild since 1988-89, and I've had the good fortune to be working most every year of those years. I'm now on a Writers Guild pension, which is delicious. And it gives me the assurance that I don't have to scramble for jobs that I don't want or that will exploit me. Uh, I can do the work that I think matters. But even for somebody like me, last year I found myself taking the job as a staff writer. I was getting... a week for six weeks on a show with a budget of $18 million an episode. So, you know, compare those two figures. Um, That's what they think writing is worth. And I think a whole bunch of us, people who are in precarity, people who are comfortable, people who are emerging voices like yourself, people who are emerged or even submerged voices like myself, said, it's enough. We can't Can you repeat that you. figure, how much you were getting paid? $5,185 a week, which went up to something like 5300 something after uh, May 1st. Okay. Yeah. So. And which is fine if you're getting it every week, 52 weeks a year, but when you're getting it six weeks a year? Yeah. Yeah. When you're getting it yeah. six weeks a year and you split it up between your agent, your manager, your union, your taxes, it's, 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 it, it sounds, when I first got the call for the Baron, he said, you're going to get like $46,000. I was like, wow. You know, I've never made more than $50,000 at that point in my life. But then split it all up and you realize that's nine weeks out of your life. <laughs> Not many people are working 52 weeks a year in this business. You realize that the only way to create a consistency is that's why residuals are so important. That's why having minimum staffing is so important. That's the only way to make this a consistent job, not a gig that you get. And then you spread it out over across a year if you're lucky. Yeah. So given how much disrespect the students were showing you and how much they were really digging in their heels and trying to starve you out, why do you think they decided to settle now after five months on strike? What do you think sort of made them come back to the table and agree to a deal? The fact that we weren't going to stop and they knew it. Yeah. I mean, I was on the picket line in New York City recently for the Drew Barrymore show. And I think that the last month of the strike, there was a concerted campaign among some elites in Hollywood to break the strike and break our will. 
you know, I heard whisper campaigns about myself. I think um, Matt Bellany, a Hollywood reporter, editor, former editor, tried to blacklist me recently. There was agents in people's ears saying, hey, get back to work. And I think people like Drew Barrymore fell for it. I think that she got bad advice that said, if you go back to work, they're not going to be able to stop you. And so she tried to bring back her show. Uh, Bill Mars to try to bring back his show. And we came back and we picketed the hell out of those shows and we shut those shows down. So I guess we need to give them one last example of our power that America's sweetheart tried to scab and we were not going to let that happen. Um, For a week, at least, we made Drew Barrymore one of the least popular people in America. I don't know if her, I'm sure her career will rebound for that week. Oh, my God. People hate everywhere I went. People like, did you hear about Drew Barrymore? So you take the America's sweetheart who hated Drew Barrymore before that. And you say, uh-uh, no scabbing. I think we just put our foot down and said, don't you even try this crap. We know what you're trying to do. You're trying to break the union. It ain't going to work. We're still out here. We're still mobilized. Any show we had to put up, we're going to put down. And then we had to give them that force of power. Now, I don't know what happened in the negotiating room in between, but I saw on the picket line, it just emboldened people. And I'm sure the studios were like, oh, God, did we just make them angry again? So, you know, we just showed the more you try to push us, the harder we push back, and we can push back a lot harder than the 1%. We're the 99%. We have the numbers. We produce the value, and eventually they had to admit that because at the end of the day, they need money. They can try to say, oh, we're saving so much money because we're not producing anything. That doesn't mean much to shareholders. Their stocks were in tank. The investors are pissed off, and ultimately, you need a supply to meet the demand. It's like any other business. You need to keep producing. So I think that they had to get a reality check, and eventually they can't continue to live in la-la land. The workers have the power. Absolutely. I think, you know, for a while they were saying, look how much money we're saving because we're not producing anything. That's like McDonald's saying, hey, look how much money we're saving by not buying any beef patties. You know, (laughs) at a certain point, they got to sell something. And I would hope that the victory here leaving no sector of our union behind, help SAG-AFTRA achieve a contract that addresses their needs, as this one addresses ours. But I would also hope, and I think, Alex, you share this, that we are helping the labor movement realize something that the labor movement has known and has forgotten and has remembered, that when we hold the line, we win. Mm -hmm. And that workers have to receive a just and proportionate share of the wealth that our labor creates. And that without that, we don't work. And without that, they don't work. So building on what you're just talking about, Howard, you know, of course, you know, there may be a tentative agreement with the writers, but this is far from the end of the labor struggles we are, that are going on in Hollywood right now. We've still got the sag after TV and film actors on strike. And then now it looks like the video game voice motion stunt actors could be joining them very soon. They had a 98% strike authorization vote. And then um, I think, Alex, you were mentioning earlier that, you know, a lot of the, the below-the-line so-called uh, Hollywood workers, the the ones who sort of do a lot of the work, the, the invisible work that makes all of Hollywood run, uh, represented by the Teamsters and IATSE, they're negotiating their contracts next year. The OFX people and for SAG-AFTRA to look at the landscape without realizing that it has profoundly changed and tilted in the direction of labor. The winds are at our back, internationally, nationally, as in this town. And 
I would hope that they would see what we did as something to build upon, not as a one-off, not as a unicorn, and certainly not as a final victory, but as an inspiration to fight harder and win more. I would love to be in a position where three years from now, when we're negotiating our next contract, we are trying to incorporate in our next contract some of the gains that they have gained in the interim. Yeah, I think that, you know, I think the strike was won early on, and it just took a long time for the studios to admit reality. But when Lindsay Dowdery and the Hollywood Teamsters decided not to cross our picket lines, that shut down Hollywood. So the Teamsters should be emboldened knowing that they run this place. <laughs> you know, without Teamsters, nothing gets transported. We will remember the solidarity that we've been shown. And I can't pledge every single member is going to be on any picket line, right? But I know that we will not forget the solidarity, especially we saw from Teamsters. This strike, I don't know. I don't know if we would have won it without the Teamsters' solidarity. I don't know if we would have been able to shut down as many shows as we shut down as quickly as we shut down those shows. So we got to keep up the, the movement and come to the picket line. But also, I think what the writers offer to all the other forces of labor across the world, across America and across Hollywood, certainly, is that we're storytellers. I think that is the power that we truly discovered in this strike. The last strike, there was no social media, right? Um, or if there was social media, it was, it was very small and it wasn't as powerful of a force as it is today. People live on social media now. They get their news from social media before and past strikes, so much of the messaging, the rhetoric, the information was controlled by the studios through the trades, through the Hollywood Reporter, Variety, Deadline. This time, we had an army of the greatest storytellers and communicators in America correcting the record, obliterating propaganda, and telling people the truth of the entertainment industry. So I hope that the solidarity that we offer the rest of the unions of America and Hollywood is not just our our blue shirts on the picket line, but our minds in the fight. And we offer the ability to tell the stories of the conditions and dramatize it. Um, that's what I try to do with our guild. And I'm, I'm committed to doing that. Any, Hey, if you are in a union, hit me up. <laughs> I'm here to help you. You know, I'll do a pro bono if I need to, because I feel like whenever when the Teamsters won their contract, we were rallying with them the day before, the day before they went back to the negotiating table. Every union victory builds our power. I truly believe you mean that. At, you mean at UPS? Are you talking yes. about? Yes. We had a big rally of the UPS Teamsters. Later that day, UPS said, hey, let's come back to the table. And they gave UPS every, mostly everything they wanted. When we show our solidarity together. Gave the Teamsters. I mean, UPS gave the Teamsters everything. UPS gave the Teamsters everything they wanted. When we show our solidarity that we're one great unit, we are workers, we are labor, then we all win more. I really believe that. I've studied, I was part of the Green New Deal movement. So I studied the New Deal really closely. And the way that workers were able to build power and get better and better protections and then codify those protections through Congress and the presidency into law was by seeing us all as one great unit that when you win, I win. Um, when Starbucks wins, that gives us more, more momentum. Now, that's a new consciousness in Hollywood. I don't know how widely it's shared, but that's what I've seen so poignantly and beautifully in our solidarity this year. So we're going to keep building it. Yeah. And we've just planted seeds this year. This year, 
Yeah, go ahead. Since you mentioned that, I think, you know, one of the things that a lot of participants in the strike and observers of the strike have pointed out about the Hollywood strikes this year is precisely this degree of cross-union solidarity that we've seen. You know, I think entertainment industry unions and other unions have really stuck together in a way this time that wasn't necessarily the case in the past. And I'd like to hear your thoughts on why you think that is. I think some of it is the larger climate internationally and nationally. If you look at the polling, the idea of labor unions is more popular in the United States than it has been at any time since the New Deal. Think about that for a second. So the the, the winds of change were at our back. But I also think that we all did our homework. We reached out to each other. We talked to each other. We made sure that none none of us blindsided the other one. And so when we moved, it wasn't just, oh, we're doing that and, you know, please come and support us. No, from the very beginning, this was conceived as part of a larger labor movement. And we used organizational tactics developed from the larger labor movement. And we worked in concert with the other unions in town, other entertainment industry unions, for sure, but other non-entertainment industry unions as well, janitors, hotel workers. I think the more our membership understood, and we were quick studies that our victories were theirs and their victories were ours, the more that built and built to the point where, yes, we were fighting for things that were writer-exclusive agendas, but I don't think anybody I talked to on the picket lines saw this as just for writers. And I think the other unions got that we weren't just, as was said in the 2008 strike, oh, it's just millionaires fighting billionaires. No. It's people who would be left selling citrus fruits by the bottom of a freeway ramp with a sign that says, we'll work for Disney versus our large corporate overlords. And, you know, if you take a look at the people who run their lives, they're not very different than the people who run our lives. Their, their bosses are not very different than ours. In some cases, they're the same goddamn bosses. Take a look at Amazon and the people who drive the Amazon trucks. So that spirit was felt, but also in so many small, concrete ways, the unions reached out to each other and said, hey, let's link arms. And we did. And I have to say that the victory of the Writers Guild here was largely due to the interdependence of the struggle of the writers and all of the other unions in town and out of town. Yeah, I have to agree. Like I said, I don't think we would have won this, in, especially at the scale that we've won without, especially the Teamsters and IATSE standing by us. And instead of criticizing us, you know, which has happened in past strikes, hey, you're putting me out of work. I've gotten so much support from makeup artists and truck drivers and directors of like, you're fighting for all of us. That is a new consciousness. But I think that people in America since Occupy, since Bernie Sanders, since the 2020 uprisings, they understand the language of power a lot more. And they understand that power is not just given. Power is taken. And you can't just beg for your rights. You have to organize them for them and, and take your rights. That is still new. Most people don't identify as organizers, even people on the picket line. But I think when we start to see all of us as agents of change, as potential organizers, in whatever way, not not everyone's organizing a whole labor movement. Some people are just organizing their workplace by talking to the coworkers about what's really going on. That's how labor usually starts. So the power of truth, 
the power of organizing, the power of organizing truth, I think really affected people across all industries. And I've heard from people across all sectors of Hollywood and teachers and all sorts of people who have reached out to me about my story working on a gigantic show. But the story of you're going home and you're freezing. But when you go to work, you have to put up the appearance that everything's okay. I think that's a, that's a feeling that's common. I think how I've often talked about is that there's a dream factory. That's what they call Hollywood. It's where dreams are made. It's a dream factory. And just like any factory, the assembly line is getting faster and faster. Workers are not able to keep up. Our bodies are breaking down. Our minds are breaking down. We're not getting paid more. And our bosses are getting further and further away from the assembly line. There's one big assembly line in this country and across the world that we all work on. We produce great goods. We produce value. And that's an amazing thing. But I think most of us are getting tired of the pace going faster, but our pay going lower. So this is just emblematic of, you say it in Hollywood, right? Like we've been talking about, from showrunner to staff writer, from screenwriter to truck driver, we all are feeling the squeeze. The 1% has degraded the working condition and obliterated the, work, the middle class for so long that they have organized for us. Sometimes the best organizer is the boss. And the boss has, in, in their words in this strike, more than I've ever seen before, also explain, we're not your friends, we want you homeless. So they've done a lot of the work for us. So we have to keep going and keep building on these gains. But the 1% has become so depraved and so detached from reality. And you look at Elon Musk, so just strange that people don't want to be ruled by these people. They don't want to appoint these people kings. And if they get a legitimate way to organize their power and to have some power in this world again and not just surrender to the idiots at the top, they'll take that. They just need a real theory of change. And I think labor and your power as a laborer is the clearest new theory of change that people have gotten for a long time. For for a long time with um Trump, especially. I mean, it was like, hey, come out to this protest. We're going to get a million people to the Capitol. And then a million people come to the Capitol. And then nothing would change. We were like, what the hell? Wait, I thought if I come out to the streets with a protest sign, then I'd win. And people got very disaffected, especially young people I, I, I've organized with. Got very disaffected for, for a couple of years, disillusioned. But now we're showing a way to really change your material conditions. And it's not about voting for somebody. And then maybe in four years, they might pass one law that kind of changes things. It's about you, yourself, your friends, your coworkers, your workplace. That is where change emerges from. And that's a new consciousness in America that I think the seed has just begun to sprout. In case you're just joining us. We're here with Alex O'Keefe and Howard Rodman. They're both uh, leaders and activists in the Writers Guild of America, and we're talking about the recently announced tentative agreement ending the five-month strike of writers that has paralyzed Hollywood for the past five months. I'm your guest host, Barry Eidlin, standing in this week for Susie Weissman. So obviously we've talked about this a bit already, but you know the Writers Guild is no stranger to strike. I think writers have struck roughly every decade for the past several decades. But I'd like to hear, and particularly Howard, since you've lived through it, uh, how you think this strike has differed from those previous strikes. Yeah. I, In order to talk about that, I want to go back to the heady days of 2004, before either of you were born. We had a union at that point, which was a union of progressives to some extent, but it was not a progressive union. We had an executive director who came out of labor management on the management side. 
the people who hired him thought, oh, he sort of knows where they hide the money. We should have him on our side. But our executive director never saw himself on our side. He saw what we wanted to do as inmates running the asylum. I was on the 2004 negotiating committee, and he would say again and again, I can't ask for that. I would be laughed out of the room. Or he would say, they've got a pot of money. They've decided how much they're going to pay us. Our job is to decide how to divvy it up. And we thought differently. We thought our job was, or we thought the job of the executive director of the Writers Guild of America West was to work with us to develop the leverage to get the things we needed, not to tell us that we were crazy for asking too much, not telling us that they could never ask for that because they would be laughed at. We didn't care if he got laughed at. What we cared was if the bacon could be brought home. And so we organized. We had an election. We got a majority of the seats on the board, and we fired our executive director. And we brought in an executive director who came out of organizing. And we took a union of largely progressive people and tried to transform it into a progressive union, a union whose base was organizing. And so negotiation after negotiation after negotiation, we didn't just say, we, the leadership, have decided this is what we should fight for and this is what you need. We, uh, you know, for instance, going into the 2017 negotiation, which is the last negotiation where I was president, we had 30, 40, maybe 50 individual meetings, meetings with showrunners, meetings with staff writers, meetings with screenwriters, meetings by zip code, meetings with people who were kings of the world, meeting with people who had just barely gotten a toehold in the union. And we said, what are your issues? And some of what we had thought were our issues were confirmed. And some of the issues that emerged, we had no idea of until we went to those meetings. And so when we formulated a pattern of demands, It wasn't a kind of abstract thing that was imposed from the top down. It came out of listening and it came out of organizing. And so when we started pushing for some pretty extreme things, we had the force behind us of a union who felt these are our demands. So the fact that this strike came out of a decade or more of union organizing as opposed to a decade or more of gee, wouldn't it be nice if, I think made all the difference. And one of the things that I think was different about this strike was for a long time now, various sectors of the Guild have thought the agenda of the pattern of demands, the agenda of what's really going to get fought for, is the agenda of the wealthiest TV showrunners in this business. And if they get what they want, some of that might trickle down to the rest of us. And in this negotiation, we said, no, nobody gets left behind. Comedy variety writers don't get left behind. Daytime writers don't get left behind. Uh, writers of the- theatrical features don't get left behind. Writing teams don't get left behind. Staff writers don't get left behind. And unless there's something for all of us, then all of us keep walking. And boy, did they not believe that at first. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think the membership didn't at first believe it. They thought, That's great, that's great, but we know at the end of the day what's going to be thrown under the bus. And I think certainly the bosses didn't believe it because they'd never seen that from us before. They'd always thought, okay, we'll give them this, and then we don't have to give them anything else. And they had to give us everything. And we just kept walking the line. 
as has been pointed out, the enthusiasm on the line on the very last day of the strike was no less numerically or in terms of decibels than the enthusiasm on the line on the very first day of the strike. And at a certain point, they got it. Or maybe at a certain point, Wall Street just told them, shut up and make a deal. Or maybe at a certain point, they were able to iron out the differences among them, and they have very, very different business models, and what's good for Sony is bad for Netflix, and what's good for Netflix is bad for Sony, and just said, we're losing too much money. I don't know. Why did the Grinch steal Christmas? I don't know. But, you know, at a certain point, I don't care. Really, what I care about is, for whatever reasons, they were able to give us what we needed. Do we need to build on it? Absolutely, for a certainty. Do other unions need to take the ball that we're going to hand them and run with it? Yep. Will they do that with our fullest support? Yep. But at the end of the day, what makes this strike different is it feels like the beginning of a story and not the end of one. And I can't tell you both how important that is and how moving that is. And Howard, I just thank you as, you know, a former officer, a former president of the Writers Guild, for me to enter the guild at this time, it feels right. You know, it just feels right. Um, I feel like it's a home. It's a democratic home. And I can speak for myself and for many writers like myself that in this business of sharks, the union feels like the one place I can truly build power. And not just my power, but the power of the collective. It feels like the one place when the bosses have taken so much power that this is where I go to. And I think Alex and I are sort of opposite ends of the spectrum. He's the guy with the barn burner rabble rousing, you know, I want to see a sea of green Mm -hmm. speeches. And I'm the guy who quietly sneaks an obscure quote from Karl Marx and Jabariah. Yes, (laughs) but we appreciate you. (laughs) You you did it because you got to the top with that. And I think that that's a, I I told Barry, like, you're the expert and I'm learning (laughs) I I actually think, Alex, you know, and I hope this isn't part of what will be broadcast. We're we're all learning from each other. You know, I mean, I went to the Palladium last night, you know, for the presentation of the contract. But really, it was a sort of celebration of great and grand relief and was so moved by the fact that I've been in the Guild since 1989. I've been in, in Guild leadership since 2004. It was so gratifying to be in a room of that many people, thousand, two thousand, I don't know, and see very few people I knew. Yeah. You know, to see yeah. a whole new generation of people who came up just before the strike and during the strike. Yeah. And what I love is they're more militant than I am. Yeah. You know, because my militancy comes both from before I could earn a living as a writer, I had to make do with day jobs like union organizing. Also, uh, you know, civil rights struggle, anti-war stuff, you know, I mean, you know, whereas they came into an industry in their 20s where, and I think this will resonate with you, Alex, you grab the brass ring and you've got it in your hand. You know, you, you're, you're like, oh, my God, I'm a writer's assistant. I'm a showrunner's assistant. I'm a writer's room assistant. I'm a staff writer. I'm a story editor. I'm an executive story editor. Oh, my God, I'm like a, a co-producer. But I can't afford to live in Los Angeles. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, for me, it's part experiential, part ideological, part a deep lifelong belief in the value of the labor movement. And for them, it's I want to eat. Yeah. You know, and and not in failure, but in success. I want to eat. So they get it. And uh, whatever else the strike may have been, I think 
among the AMPTP victories was they radicalized the generation of writers and beyond. Oh yeah, that's <laughs> the biggest loss. I mean, we can we can quantify their loss in the contract um, in the concessions they made. But there's a larger loss, not just within Writers Guild, but across all the labor unions. I can speak especially of the young people in the union, not just the young people, but the young people in the union. I, I don't think this has been a part of Hollywood culture. They now see themselves as part of the labor movement. Right. I just came from a UAW picket. Right. And there were production assistants that were there, too. And UAW, one of the one of the workers that was on strike, they put on a productions assistant United um, button. So it's a different level of solidarity that I think we haven't really seen maybe at the beginning of the guild um, when, you know, we had a lot of militancy that had come from the labor movement. But because the labor movement has been defeated and just beaten down for so many decades, we haven't seen this level of power, celebration, catharsis. I think for so many labor organizers, and Barry, I'm sure that you can speak to it, it's like a, a penance that you pay, you know, like labor organizing for the last couple of decades has been a grueling, you know, defeat after defeat. And people stay in it and there's dedication. I have so much respect for people like you, Barry, TDU, UAW, reform movements. But to be on the other side and you're celebrating a historic contract that you won by keeping solidarity, never being divided in a contract that. Before this strike, I wasn't sure, even though I had worked on the Barrett, that I would still be able to survive in this industry because it seemed like now you had to work your way up for 10 years to just get to any level of stability. And even then, I'm talking to showrunners who are just saying, like, I'm not seeing any of the profits of these large shows. You talk to actors like <laughs> uh, Aaron Paul from Breaking Bad said that he doesn't get really any share of the success of the Netflix streaming of Breaking Bad. So it's been this curtain was ripped down, and I'm sure they'll try to put that curtain back up and, you know, make it all glitzy and glamorous again, Hollywood. But so many people now identify as workers. And when you identify as workers, as a collective of workers, that is so much more powerful than the previous culture of Hollywood, individuals all competing with each other for scarce gigs. And if we are able to, my generation and Howard's generation, across Race and generational, if we are able to see past these things that they've used to divide us and we see each other as comrades, as collaborators in solidarity, they will not be able to defeat us. We will be able to really break the monopolies that are just choking out the life and the art of this business. Just, just to, to amplify on what Alex said, I mean, I came out of the labor organizing I did when I was in my 20s was for a thing called the Committee of Interns and Residents, now affiliated. CIR, yeah. CIR. Yeah, CIR. And we were organizing for the 80-hour work week. Mm. That was what we wanted to get. And they told us, no, no, you, you know, we suffered when we were kids. Now you suffer. You're on every other night. Mm -hmm. We said, we're, people are dying because we're going without sleep. And we had the advantage of a lot of the people we were organizing, salaried physicians working for the city and for public hospitals, some private, they were mostly foreign medical grads because the U.S. medical machine was not cranking out enough graduates. So they hired from the Philippines and the Autonomous University of Guadalajara, things like that. They knew they were the last hired and first fired. They knew how precarious their position was. They knew as soon as the U.S. medical machine was cranking out all of these white male U.S. medical graduates, that their futures would be like this. So they had the courage that came from having less to lose. Mm. And 
we won that strike. We won the 80 hour work week. I know from now, you know, just to say for it like medical that, residents, that's a big deal. But yeah, yeah. It was, it yeah. was a my, big, it was a my, big freaking deal. And, yeah, my, um, I cannot begin to tell you, you know, how hard that was, what that cost in, in toil and sweat and whatnot. And it came after a decade of not so victorious labor struggle, yeah. uh, as Alex was talking about. But yeah. I want to tell you two things, you know, that I noticed. One at the beginning of the strike, one today. Today, I was in a faculty meeting at USC. You think it's hard getting writers to see themselves as labor. Try getting academics to see themselves yeah. as labor. Yeah. Good luck. And because of the strike and because our students understand the strike in some ways better than our faculty, there was militancy in that faculty meeting that I haven't seen in my mm-hmm. 20 years at USC. It's like, you know, why are we asking for one thing when, you know, actually maybe we should Recording ask for all of these things. And the other thing that, that happened is I don't think the solidarity is confined to the labor movement. Mm-hmm. I was away. I was out of the country. I came back on Thursday midday. I thought, okay, I'll go walking around the line tomorrow. I started getting on, you know, uh, a little group that I'm part of. And they said, dude, you're planning on wearing your docs, aren't you? And I said, yeah, my doc Martins are me. They said, that's not the shoot for walking the picket line. They said, come on, these are my docs. You know, it's like, you know, and they said, you need a pair of hokas. And I said, what's a hoka? I said, okay, I'll get a pair of hokas. So literally step off a plane, drive to Melrose Avenue to the hoka store. I walk into the store, say, I'm looking for a pair of shoes. The guy says, running shoes? I said, no, walking shoes, I'm on strike. And he starts showing me shoes. And as I'm trying on shoes, this guy comes over to me and says, hi, my name's Outlaw. I said, he said, I'm the store manager. I said, great. Good to meet you. He said, uh, are you looking for walking shoes because you're on strike? I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm a, on strike. He said, are you a writer? I said, yeah. And he said, solidarity. If they can crush you, they can come for us next. If you guys can stand strong, we are better protected. And yes. I thought, what a fucking clever sales pitch because he knows if I get tear stains on these hokas, I have to buy them. <laughs> yeah. Did he give you a good deal? He gave me the same deal he gave, gives everybody else. It wasn't a question of that. He just mm-hmm. wanted me to know that what we were fighting for was oh, yeah. a lot larger than what we were ostensibly in the most narrow, limited sense fighting for. And I cannot tell you how moved I was by that. And I had a minor medical procedure. Before I went under, I heard the same thing from the anesthesiologist. I mean, it's just crazy. Yeah. Um, the amount in the 2007-2008 strike, the narrative was those selfish writers are putting out of work the caterers and dry cleaners of this yeah. town. Have they no pity? And now everybody has had a greedy corporate boss and deeply understands. They yeah. get it. They don't have to be taught it. You don't have to tell somebody at McDonald's that corporations make money off of their sweat and labor. Yeah. yeah. I think that's – and, Barry, I want you to get to your questions, but just to <laughs> oh, – You're never going to get to your questions. <laughs> we'll get to your questions, but we're writers, all right? We're in the yeah. room, so we're yeah. pitching. Yeah. But that's the thing that I think has been so interesting. We are writers. We create culture. And I think especially the pandemic, so many people really rely on our culture, and they have deep emotional connections with the culture that we create, the char- characters that we craft. And it's sometimes their only escape from their horrific nine-to-five job. So then to hear the people who are behind that culture, many of them are also suffering. Many of them are also precarious. 
In my case with the bear, it, it bleeds into the actual culture that I'm creating. We have helped create a, a new American culture around solidarity. UAW is an industrial union. Perhaps they have a greater direct effect on the U.S. economy. And, you know, Joe Biden comes out to speak to them because, hey, if they if the, if the automobile industry goes under, this whole country suffers. But we also have really precious infrastructure. We have cultural infrastructure. And without us, people don't have meaning in their life. They don't find that meaning in their work. They're in their work. They're crushed. So I've been just shocked at how many every single day the message I messages I get from you know, workers across the world, across the world. I was on CNN and afterwards I got a message from somebody in Egypt and they had just come home from work and they turned on CNN International, I guess. And there I was <laughs> speaking about the, the, the struggle of writers and they felt inspired and they were like, how can I organize? I've heard that from so many people. So I think with labor, especially a lot of times we're just planting seeds we don't always get to see the harvest. And thank God we got to win a deal that is going to make this a livable career for the next generation. We have to keep fighting. There's a lot of, there's a lot more to continue to work on. But still, I think we've reestablished this is a career. This isn't a gig. You're not about to replace us with AI. And that's essential to even start to build a Hollywood labor movement. But the seeds we planted in the audience that's been watching the biggest show of the summer has been the hot labor summer. We don't even know what it's going to do next year, the year after, the year after. I talked to Chris Smalls, and when he began his campaign against Amazon, he had no idea he'd be like a folk hero for strippers that unionize or Starbucks workers that unionize. And I think that we are just beginning to see the power awakened in every American worker. So I'm super excited to see what comes out of it, and I'm super excited, Barry, to, to, to ask some questions. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, uh, but before you do. Yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, uh, I think – one of I think the one of the, the ways of looking at this strike is what we do as writers, as storytellers, is create value. We create mm-hmm. value for ourselves and our souls. We create value for our employers, most certainly, and we create value for the larger community on a good day, we create value for the world. Yeah. They see what we do not as creating value, but as a cost, simply as a cost. Mm. And what do you do with a cost? You put downward pressure on a cost. And I think those two worldviews coexisted for a while. There was a kind of uneasy tension between them. And I think what happened that brought us to this strike is which side are you on? Pick one. Yep. Is are, are, are we creators of value or are we just a cost to you? And I think they learned a lesson. I hope they learned a lesson. Mm-hmm. Certainly we schooled them. We we'll schooled see. them. They might not learn. Like you say, and deliver. We have to keep coming to these kids, teaching them. But they. Oh, learn. I, I, I'm not. I'm not saying sit on our laurels for another generation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I hear you. I gotta be honest. Like there was a big part of me that thought by the time we negotiate the contract, there will be concessions. That's just normal in unions. And I figured that somebody like me would be on the brunt of the concessions and that my career would not be lifted up. That's often how unions work um, because, hey, I'm not bringing that much money into the union with my with my contracts. And to see this contract and read through it and see that staff writers are looked out for, see that there's a minimum for room size that, you know, I can still you know, I had a foot in the door and this strike pushed me out the door, <laughs> you know, and they slammed the door shut. 
So I'm like, oh, I got to get my foot back in. And I feel like this contract at least opens up the door for new emerging voices like myself to get that foot in the door and actually climb up a ladder. I think that the ladder is not perfect. It's rickety. (laughs) No, it's not easy. and It's not guaranteed, but it's there. And to know that it's there, it tells me I should keep I should keep going. I should stay in this business. And I know I contribute a lot to this business already. I think the bear is amazing. And I wasn't sure I was going to, going to continue. And if it wasn't for the work of people like Howard, the people who came before me in the guild, people who came before Howard in the guild, we wouldn't be here right now. And I remember at the beginning of the strike, when we did the strike authorization meeting, there was a meeting and I spoke at it. And the reason why I spoke and I tried to organize and mobilize the young generation that didn't quite see themselves as I'm a writer's bill of America member is you have to understand this arc of history this wave of history. And I just felt that there was this torch that was lit by so many generations before me. And it's why I had health insurance. (laughs) It's why I had a union job. And that was my duty to keep that flame alive. The flame has become an inferno with this strike. And it's just, I am endlessly grateful to everyone who came before me. And I hope I can carry this torch on. And I hope we can continue building a better Hollywood and knowing that the things that seem impossible are only impossible until it's won. And when you fight for everybody, you can win with everybody. <laughs> and it's easier to win with more people. And we've been told, no, we have to divide ourselves. We have to empower just the most powerful people, the people at the top of the union. No, we can win for the top and we can win for the bottom. And that's what a union should be. It should be the one institution you can go to in America. It's a democracy and it's looking out for you no matter what your income level is. Because you're a worker, because you care about this crap, and you're trying to build a better workplace. You're trying to keep this workplace going. You're trying to keep the assembly line running. And we wouldn't be here without decades and especially years of labor. And Howard, I don't know if when you were president you could have imagined a, a win this big. Hey, we have big imaginations at the Writers Guild, but... I'm just hopeful when I get older, what more can we win? What more? How can this strike seem small compared to the new contracts we win? We've shown how much we can win. And now we have even more members who are ready to be organizers and build even more power. We have so many creative new voices in the guild. And if we can put this not just into the union, but into our culture and make stuff like the bear, that's speaking about work and speaking about the reality of the situation, then we can affect a movement, a cultural movement that can build the power of workers across America, across the world and can continue to inspire. So that is what I hope that this is the beginning of the story. And this is the beginning of my career. And, you know, there's some people who want to knock me out of Hollywood, blackball me, trust me, but I ain't going nowhere. We ain't going nowhere. The Writers Guild is just getting started with the new era that we're all on. And we're going to win more. We're going to win bigger. There's another contract battle in three years. <laughs> and I don't know what we'll be fighting for. But whatever we're, we're, we're fighting for then, I know it's going to be the needs of every member of this guild, not just the top. That's how you have a winning union. TDU, UAW, Teamsters, that's why we're in this powerful strike wave right now. We've realized the only way to win is together. The 99 against the 1%. Alex, I want to tell you why what you said is so moving to me. I'm in a chapter of my life that's far closer to the end of the book than the front cover. I have the single best job it's possible to have in the Writers Guild of America West, which is ex-president. 
it's like being a grandparent. You get all the love, but you don't have to wake up in the middle of the night and change a diaper. And for the first time in my life in the union, and I've been in union leadership again since the early 2000s, first as a kind of outside agitator and then as part of the union leadership, I feel we're passing the torch on to good hands. We're passing the torch on to better hands. I feel like the generation that comes after us is going to take the union places we could scarcely imagine. And I can't tell you how moving that is to me, how important that is to me, and how happy it makes me, not just that there are people who are willing to carry on the tradition or pour amber over the victories we've achieved, but to say, hey, you've given us a lever, a fulcrum, and a place to stand. Now we are going to move the world. Yes. And uh, when I am no longer involved in union politics, although that's hard for me to imagine, or no longer writing, which is even more difficult for me to imagine, or no longer walking this planet, which I actually frighteningly can imagine, I think all of that is made easier by knowing that there's not just a legacy there is the promise of a better world to come because of the generation that emerged from this strike. And I say Godspeed and I say solidarity. Solidarity, Howard. I truly appreciate that. So bringing it back to Earth a bit. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, what? what? Reincarnation? Uh, Yeah. So because I I think it's important to recognize here that, you know, we, we have this big win with the contract. And there's a lot of energy sort of coming out of the, out of the pickets and you're sort of feeling, you know, thinking about what's next, you know, but it's one thing to win a good contract, but it's quite another to actually enforce it. Right. And can you guys talk? I don't know how much you've been talking about this yet, but I'd like to hear about sort of what are the steps that you're taking in the WGA to make sure that you're actually able to safeguard what you want on the picket line and make sure that members are able to know their rights and how to enforce the contract. I think that a lot of the work of enforcing the contract has been done on the picket lines, which is people don't feel alone. They don't feel isolated. They don't feel like if I stick my neck out to complain about free work, my neck's going to get chopped off. Mm -hmm. off. They feel if I stick my neck out to talk about free work that I'm being asked to do, somebody standing next to me is going to say, and I won't do that either. And I think contract enforcement really – Some of it is an issue of the fine print of legalese, but most of it is the issue of each individual writer feeling that the other individual writers are not their competitors, but their colleagues and comrades, feeling like they have your back. So if I say to, for instance, uh, my last employer was, uh, I wrote a feature film for one of the streaming services that shall remain nameless. Hey, Howard, can you just do another pass on this? I can say no. Because I know that I'm surrounded by a community of people who will not say, Howard, you idiot, just get along to go along. They will say, yeah, and I say no too. So I think the best kind of contract enforcement is the spirit of the membership. But that having been said, the guild staff is awesome. And they are totally dedicated to fighting as hard to maintain the contract as they fought to win it. I have no doubts about that. Alex, you want to take, you know, that further? Hey, the guild staff is amazing. Anytime I've had any kind of issue, I call up the guild. I get through to somebody quick. They connect me with what I need to connect with. I feel protected. A lot of it, we have show captains, right? 
kind of like our shop steward. So each show has a, a captain who's in charge of making sure there's no abuses. That captain structure has been adapted to the strike captains who are really active members who have kept people on the line and kept that spirit of solidarity Howard is talking about. So I can't speak to the guild policy, but I know that there are many captains who want to continue organizing, continue to um, be aware, and just push back as one group. If you're in a writer's room and there's some kind of abuse happening to one writer or one writer is trying to find a loophole in the contract, we all push back together. I think solidarity is our weapon. Um, but, yeah, we have an amazing staff. We need to all see ourselves as organizers and see ourselves as stewards of this contract. And if we all keep up that spirit, they won't be able to beat us. Amen. So, I mean, this has just been such a fantastic conversation. But just to, to wrap things up, you know, I mean, the obviously the members uh, decide, have the final word, and they're going to be voting on ratifying in the next couple weeks. But with the strike seemingly over for now, what what do you see as the next steps for you, and what do you see as the next steps for the WGA? Well, I think the contract has, in essence, already been ratified with our feet. We saw that happening. But in, in terms of the next step for me personally, uh, just before the strike was declared, I was hired to write a pilot. Uh, I didn't write a word of it while I was on strike, because I was on strike. And as of today, I get to now bloody my head against the wall of a blank page. And however miserable that is for me, it's a glorious feeling because I can do it and I can do it legitimately and I can do it under a really good contract. And so I think for a lot of us, it's about rolling up our sleeves and getting back to work. And I think for a lot of people, it's about, okay, now I can start, you know, uh, going to those meetings with bottled water and a bowl of fruit on the table and pitch my little leathery lungs out and get the next job. But I think for all of us, some of this period is going to be about realizing the strike is over. Some of it is about sort of changing gears from strike gear into, oh, my God, writing gear. And some of it is about making sure that in our hearts and in our souls, S-O-U-L and S-O-L-E-S, that what we learned about our each other, and what we learned about ourselves in the 146, 148 days of the strike continues to burn within us because that will motivate our lives as writers and it will motivate our writing because TV shows, movies, they're empathy machines. You spend a couple hours in a movie theater seeing the world through somebody else's eyes and maybe you walk out of there saying, huh, the way I see the world isn't the only way the world can be seen. Maybe there are other ways of doing that. And I think the experience of the strike for me and the experience of the the strike for, I think, a lot of people has changed the way they look at the world and will change the way they write about the world. Mm. And I can't tell you, you know, um, how much, uh, uh, how moving that is to me, how important that is to me. And frankly, how it inspires me to say, you know what? You're not in the entertainment business. You're in the business of changing the world. Now, mm. how are you going to do that? Not just mechanically by say, you know, writing Norma Ray electric boogaloo. Yeah. Yeah. But by making sure that all you have as a writer is your voice and your time and that you're not wasting either in service of tranquilizing the people who watch your shows 
but in service of changing the way they see the world and see themselves and their sense of possibility. Beautifully said. And that's my greatest hope that comes out of this strength that all these incredible storytellers that I've met across generation and rank do not leave these feelings behind, but pour it into our art. And I don't think art has to be didactic to be world changing. It just has to be good. So let's make a new, a generational new wave of art that speaks to America as it is, um, that doesn't just tranquilize people and is not used as a tool of the 1% to put people to sleep, but we wake people up and we make people feel something again. In this cold world, we, we warm their heart, we make them feel something in their chest. As far as me, I want to make that kind of art. You know, there are some powerful people who have identified me as a rabble rouser as a troublemaker as a militant minority and they would like to see it so i don't work again because of what i said and i think the best thing i can do in this next couple months is to write some of the greatest scripts you've read in years and to show people you can't stop me you know that's what i'm excited to do i'm going to pour my energy i'm going to take a pause from organizing which is always hard for me but i'm going to pour my energy into writing and Right, putting this fire that I've seen all across America and putting it between lines and sometimes explicitly into my art. So I'm excited for that. I have to make sure the best way to show people that you can speak out, you can share your truth is to survive and to thrive. So that is the next phase of the fight for me to thrive in this business and show there's a place for a black man with my voice to succeed and survive. And to thrive. I so look forward to seeing the work that you have yet to make. I am eager with anticipation. I want to close with a quote from James Baldwin. Okay. You write in order to change the world, knowing perfectly well that you probably can't. The world changes according to the way people see it. And if you alter even by a millimeter the way people look at reality, then you can change it. If there's no moral question, there's no reason to write. And I think Alex is absolutely right. That doesn't mean we write didactic, agitprop stuff that, you know, would be perfectly suitable in, you know, late 1920s Soviet Union. It means that we write stories from the heart that speak to other people's hearts that change the way that they regard themselves as humans, that we're all in this together. That's a great way to end it. Howard Rodman, Alex O'Keefe, what a pleasure speaking to both of you. Thank you so much. Best of luck and solidarity on these next steps after this great victory. Thank you, Barry. Solidarity for Thank you, Barry. This was great. And Alex, I have to say, what an honor and a pleasure it is to share this conversation with you. You inspire me, and I'm such an old armadillo. It's very hard for me to get inspired. <laughs> so um, <laughs> know that you've moved a very large rock in reaching my heart. Thank you, Howard. I, I, I mean the word I say that I have so much respect for this guild and the leaders and people like you and just writers who have paved this way. Like, you know, I'm sure you remember how it was when you first entered the guild to just be part of it. It feels like you've made it and to be welcomed by people like you has meant everything. So I truly appreciate it. And all I want to do is carry on and build upon everything that you've already built. So I'm here. I'm a, I'm a comrade. I'm always here in solidarity, and um, yeah, my email. Let's build. Let's keep <laughs> building. Let's build that movement. I think that now is a time. It's a historic time. Alex, here's the baton. Take this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, too bad it's on a podcast. So you. Can- <laughs>
<laughs> we can't do some v, v, some VFX or something. Like that, you know? I'll take it. I'll remember this hour. I'll take yeah. it. And yeah. in five yeah. years, I'll say, "Hey, you're the one who handed me the baton." Yeah, that's right. And and someday it's going to be your turn to yes. uh, pass it on to a bunch of folks who are going to make you look like an old fogey. Exactly. I can't yeah. wait to be yeah. an old an yeah. old head man. I can't yeah. wait. Uh, yeah. Can no, I tell you not, something? Not, it, 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 not such a bad feeling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great. All right. Take care. Cool. Um, no, this is, this has really been fantastic. Uh, I don't, I, I, I do not envy my editor because I don't know what's, they're going to have to edit this down to a one hour show and, uh, the, the, the full, the, the broader thing can be, uh, uh, the, the podcast can be longer, but the radio show is going to have to be edited down to like 58 minutes and I'm not quite every, sure how that's going to happen. But. Every good writer needs an editor, man. That's all I can tell you about my first job. Yeah. They'll, they'll yeah. figure it out, I'm sure. Yeah. And if you pay the editor fairly, they'll do a good job. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> Yeah. So uh, not 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 my department, but <laughs> but, uh, but anyway. No. Uh, re- once again, you know, I really appreciate you guys taking the time. It's been a fantastic conversation. And uh, so the the live broadcast is going to be on KPFK on uh, Sunday morning, I think, at 10 a.m. And then uh, the Jacobin podcast full version will drop, I think, on Wednesday next week. Great. So great. Thank you so, for your patience cool. with us as we got you know long winded. And thank you for the questions which allowed us. To be long-winded. Yes. And yeah. thank you for letting us, you know, converse about the real stuff, not just the sort of sound bites that you get about the strike of, you know, where they really talk about the horse races, but not what made those horse races necessary. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. That's, that, that's a big part of my, what I see my job as <laughs> labor scholars trying to get that broader picture to get people, yes. people's eye, keep people's eyes on what's really important. So. Well, yeah. Okay. We'll be in touch. Okay. Every, everybody okay. take care and take fine care of yourselves as well. Okay. Sounds good. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.